Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Burrow, your host for today's episode. Do you feel like you've missed your window of opportunity? That perhaps you didn't do the right thing at the right time or the right age? And now it's just too late to follow your dreams? Today, we're speaking with Dinah Lin, who started her corporate career at age 36, rose to the top, and then switched lanes to pursue a career in government at age 46, then moved to China to study Mandarin at age 58, and then wrote her best-selling book at age 78. Dinah lives her motto that it's never too late. Dinah's professional experience ranges from high-tech startups to Fortune 500 companies, where she's held executive roles in marketing, business development, and investor relations. Dinah also served as a senior official in President George H.W. Bush's administration. In this episode, Dinah shares her personal stories and life lessons from starting out and rising up in corporate America to landing a senior position with the federal government against all odds. As a Chinese-American, she broke through barriers and didn't let systemic bias or the absence of visible role models hold her back from following her dreams or believing in herself. She hilariously describes herself as someone who did it backwards with an unconventional journey to success. Dinah's story is a powerful reminder for all of us that we must dare to dream because it's never too late. Visit I'mBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Dinah. Hi, Dinah. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here today. Hi, Nikki. Me too. I've been looking forward to this. I know. It's going to be such a special episode because, um, you know, your journey has been so unconventional and there's so much for people to learn from it that um, I think the pearls of wisdom that will come out in this episode uh, will be truly you know, valuable for everyone listening in. So let's just start right there. You know, tell us your story. That's great. Well, nothing. I love telling my story. Thank you so much. And I always start at the beginning. And the beginning was 1949. And that was the year the communists were moving south. And they were soon going to reach Shanghai. And my mother, my younger sister, my older sister, my younger brother and I escaped on the last boat out of Shanghai. Hmm. And, you know, my dad was already here in the U.S. He was on a one-year study grant, and he was getting ready to go back. And my mom, he wrote, my mom wrote to him and said, stay, stay. I'm going to find a way to get the children and myself out. Mm-hmm. So when I look back on that, I have no idea how she managed to do that because you know, it was wartime and everyone was trying to escape. But we managed to do that and we landed in Ohio. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. We were the only Asian family mm-hmm. in this small town. And then I married young, looking back too young. Mm-hmm. Married young and, um, and for 15 years, I was a young wife and mother living in five countries in Asia. Wow. Yes. And then I finally decided, I, you know, I had to 
start my career at some point. So I had my first full-time job at the age of 36, and then I got my MBA at the age of 40, and that's mm-hmm. when I feel that I really launched myself you know, onto the corporate ladder, to climb the corporate ladder. And then at age 58, um, I decided that I would follow a dream, and I left and I moved to Beijing, mm-hmm. and a year turned into a decade. So that was the decade that China um, was undergoing incredible transformation, and I loved it. Then I came back and finally, finally followed another dream and wrote my best-selling memoir, um, Daring to Dream, once again. Wow. And, and so that is, there's so much packed into that, you know, story and from, you know, escaping on the last boat to, you know, as an immigrant from China coming to America and growing up in really the heart of the Midwest in Ohio and what that must have been like to be the only and to be different from everyone else. Uh, but also to be married young and start a career uh, in your late 30s, I believe, right? Um, I was 36 when I had my first ever full-time job. Wow. So first job ever at the age of 36 after you'd been married a while and raising kids and all of that. So uh, I'm, you know, I mean, there's so many parts of your story we can dive into and hopefully we're able to cover a a lot of that on this uh, interview. But I want to understand what it felt like for you at the age of 36 for your first job. I mean, what what sort of fears did you, you know, I mean, were there fears, were there concerns? I mean, what was that like? Scary, really, really scary. And um, I just, I had no idea where to start. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. what can I do? Because you have no frame of reference, right? I mean, everything you'd known up until that point didn't connect to what you were. The only, thing I, yeah, <laughs> the only thing I had was, you know, part-time summer jobs as a high school, you know, in high school. And I just, I, and my husband at the time, he was no help because he really didn't want me to do this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was, of course, climbing the corporate ladder at that time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what can I do? And so I thought, okay, um, I majored in economics and I was, I received honors in economics. I've always been good with numbers. I'm going to go try for banking. Mm-hmm. And I remember my interview with this, you know, manager. I was applying, of course, for entry level. Yeah. Uh, competing against other college graduates who of course were then in their early twenties. And, um, and he was asking me all kinds of questions. And then finally he asked me this question that I knew was really on his mind. He goes, Dinah, why do you want a job? You know, he was <laughs> me living this life as, you know, had a really good life and going to lunches with the ladies and having my carefree, you know, life. And he couldn't understand. And I said to him, I said, it's not a job. It's a career. Mm. It's part of my career. So from the very beginning, that's the way I viewed it. Mm. And obviously, you know, I had such conviction that I would do as, well, not as good, but better, better Mm. than, you know, whoever I was competing against for that entry level position. And Mm. thankfully, I convinced him as well. Yes. And, and so from there on, you built up this spectacular corporate career 
um, where you rose up to senior executive roles in some of the world's largest and well-known brands. Um, what was that like, you know, what almost 40 years ago now for a, you know, woman and a minority who really did not have that background before that, you know, starting a career late and then being able to navigate through so many different challenges or barriers that people typically talk about, right? Uh, and you navigated through all of those and climbed the corporate ladder. What was that like? Well, honestly, um, I was going to say, as I look back on it, there were, of course, instances of, you know, we would have to say prejudice, whether mm -hmm. it's age or, or just, you know, being a minority. But I know that I purposely chose, made a purposeful decision to not even really try to ignore it, mm -hmm. you know. And I remember my first job after I got my MBA, it was in a large Fortune 500 company. And it was probably just soon after I started working. I remember this and I talk about it in my book. Walking down the hall and coming towards me was my boss's boss, the director of the department. My mm -hmm. boss, you know, the manager, I was associate manager. And uh, as he passed me, he said, they got two points for you. And I and kept on walking. And I thought, what is he talking about? Who got two points for me? And, you know, I, had, I was so naive. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then it dawned on me. He was talking about HR. Wow. Points. One for woman, one for being minority. But, you know, I, re I also remember just not even dwelling on it, not letting mm -hmm. it upset me. And I didn't believe it. I didn't buy into it. I didn't think that that's why they hired me. Mm -hmm. so, like you weren't going to let that marginalize, you know, your own worth and contribution being defined as someone who got him because you were check they were checking a box. Yes, absolutely. And I know that, you know, that kind of remarks or whatever happened through perhaps, but maybe, maybe because I chose not to even look at it. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel that there were that many. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and luckily for me, even back then, I looked younger, <laughs> younger than my age. And so, yeah. you know, back then, I certainly didn't tell anyone my age. Uh, that came much later. And so no one knew that I was, you know, 15, 16 years older than my mm -hmm. colleague at that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, you were navigating through all of these barriers and obstacles in your way and achieving these successes in your corporate career. Um, and then at the height of that, you then make another lane switch, right? You go from this successful corporate career to going to work in, as part of the White House administration. Um, what made that happen? Where did that interest come from? You know, how did you even manage to sort of go from one path to an entirely different path? And I assume it also required you to relocate to D.C. and uh, all of those changes. So walk us through what, how that all came about. Well, yeah, first, I would just like to say that for years and years, and I think up to now, but maybe not as much, I always say I love change and challenge. Mm. I, I get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get into a position and I do it. I know what I'm, you know, I know how to do my whatever I'm doing. And then I go, okay, what's next? You know, I need another challenge. And if the company itself didn't have a different challenge, and this happened to me, then I felt like I had to look outside. I mean, mm. 
to me, it was change and challenge was for my own growth. I don't mm-hmm. know if I verbalized it to myself at, in those days, mm-hmm. but that's what it was. I was so you had a vision of your own North Star and what you need to do to keep growing towards that North Star. And every step in your career was simply building towards that as opposed to letting the company or the job you held to define where you went next. Absolutely. You know, you put it so well. I'm not sure that I knew what my North Star was per se. I just knew that I needed change and challenge to grow. Mm. And if I felt... And you sought it out. You, you yes. just kept... It didn't take me long to feel, <laughs> I feel like I got bored and stagnant. Like three years and I'm, okay, what's next, you know? And I'm on to the next. But this switch to government was different in that, and I'll have to go back, you know, back... What was, year was this and for which administration? It was 1989 for the Father Bush administration, okay. George W. Um, so in high school, I remember, you know, you we're getting ready to go to college and what, which college and what major. I remember dreaming then. Mm. I'm going to um, take the State Department exam after I graduate from college, and then I'm going to work my way up and eventually become a diplomat and be able to work towards a relationship between China and the U.S. Mm. So that was a dream that I had. And in fact, the school that I chose to go to is American University, the School of International Service. Mm. This is what I was preparing myself for. Then, of course, I met my husband. And so life changed. It's a different story. And but you didn't give up on that dream. There was that dream still alive within you. But, you know, it wasn't alive consciously. Mm. And this maybe happens, too, with some dreams, that it's... It, it's in the background, but so in the background, I didn't really dream about this consciously. Mm. All those years I was climbing the corporate ladder, I was focused, believe me, 200% on climbing the corporate ladder. But as I was getting ready to leave Chicago, leave yet another startup that you know, lost funding, I thought, okay, I think I'm done with startups. I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to work, get a job on Wall Street, make good money. The year was 1989, and President George Bush, the father, had just been elected, and I heard him give a speech on TV, and to this day, I don't really know why, but just a few words, a kinder, gentler nation, Mm. and those few words somehow resonated and resurrected this dream that I had, and I remembered this dream, and I thought, oh, I want to go to Washington, D.C., I want to spend a few years in government service. And, you know, it, it's one of those things that come. I mean, it was not something I had dwelled on and thought about and planned or anything. It just kind of came, and I just had a strong feeling this was something I wanted to do, and this was the time to do it. What was and, it about those um, words that triggered that feeling for you? What was it that it brought about? I guess it maybe you know, it tied in with this, feeling I had years ago of wanting to work for the relationship, bettering the relationship Mm. between the U.S. and China. Because to me, well, a a speech that I gave once I got to Washington was the best of both worlds. Mm. And so to me, I always felt so grateful and gratified that I had both. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, it was just so important that these two countries, America and China, you know, have a better understanding. So something about those words somehow resurrected that feeling Mm -hmm. 
of peace and kindness. Right. That's beautiful. Which we certainly can use today. (laughs) Well, anyway, that's how I, you know, made the decision to go. And I will say this, Nikki, thank goodness no one sat me down. No one sat me down and said, Dinah, forget it. Your chances of getting a position in Washington are none to nil. None to nil. I had not worked in the campaign. I had not contributed to the campaign. I didn't know a single soul in Washington, D.C. I mean, when I think back on that, I think, gee, I was really a gutsy, gutsy young lady. <laughs> and, you know. It was almost like ignorance is bliss. You didn't know how hard it could be or how many roadblocks there are, or all the qualifications and credentials yeah. and connections needed. So you just went for it. Well, you know, and that's really what entrepreneurs do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, really, if you think about it, against all odds, right? I mean, so many entrepreneurs, against all odds. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, usually you have something behind. I, I really just decided this is what I wanted to do, and I would do it. So what did you do? You just, like, sent in an application? Or how does one even get into, you know, a White House administrative, you know, role? Well, you know, I tell you, it's, it's a process. <laughs> It's definitely a process. Um, I think I found somebody who understood the, the, the sort of structure of government and was able to explain it. And I knew I wanted to be in the Department of Commerce. So mm-hmm. that I knew. I identified that. And then I studied. And this was pre-Google, pre-whatever. So just getting information was not that easy. And one thing I knew, because at that point I'd been in the corporate world at least 10 years or 15, I knew marketing. So mm-hmm. I didn't just send in a letter. No, I sent in a whole package, sent in several referral letters, sent in a biographical story, sent in my resume. You know, it was a package, <laughs> if I may say so, impressive package. And I didn't send it by mail. No, Federal Express. So I nice. sent it by Federal Express. But of course, I found somebody's name in the White House. I don't remember who, but I don't think it just said the White House. You know, it had somebody's <laughs> name. And I didn't send it just once, Nikki. I sent it four times. Wow. Each time I sent it, I waited. Nothing happened. I called. Nobody could find it. So I would send it again. And so this was this process. But wow. yes, I don't know if I, I don't know at what point I would have stopped. I don't know how, how much. You just determined and you were being persistent and, you know, finding a way in. No, absolutely. And, and so by the fourth time, somebody actually saw it and got it and answered the phone, <laughs> said, yes, I've got it. And I was able to get my interviews with the Department of Commerce. And I wasn't able to get the ideal position that I wanted, which was Deputy Assistant Secretary, which would have been Senate confirmation. That mm-hmm. was what I had my eye on. She said, aim high, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And everything went well. I had my you know, interviews at the Department of Commerce. But when I got to the White House, the White House personnel person said to me, her last question was, who's your angel in the White House? <laughs> OMG, had no idea. But I didn't have one, of course. And I honestly feel like she practically patted my head. She goes, well, my dear, better luck next time. Wow. So I did end up with a position, but it was not in commerce. It was not my ideal position in commerce, but it was a good position. And it was the next level down, senior executive service. Yes. Wow. What a phenomenal story of 
focus, determination, and resilience to get exactly what you wanted to get, uh, which the ultimate outcome was public service and being part of the administration. And it's there's so much to learn from that for anyone that is in the job market right now that might either... Um, be looking for a job because they might have been displaced because of, you know, the impact of COVID or they are in a role that they're not totally fulfilled with um, and are hoping for something bigger, better, different, but don't know how to get from point A to point B. And I think your example perfectly illustrates that. I mean, you had zero experience in government. You had no connections. You didn't even know the application process. You had no angels, so to say. You didn't contribute or were part of a campaign. And you went in completely, you know, with no resources or relationships on your side, just absolute clarity that you wanted to get into the Department of Commerce. Your why was very clear that, you know, this was purpose-driven work that was meaningful to you you know, as a Chinese American, as an immigrant to this country and wanting to foster better relationships. Um, And then just dogged determination to make it happen with four times sending the package in and ultimately getting that. Absolutely. Oh, I love the way you encapsulate. It's so great. I will also also say one thing, not just, but I I was convinced of what I could bring to the government. Mm. You know, so you had belief in your own value. And that's absolutely. why it was almost like a gift you needed to give because you had something so important to contribute. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is critical throughout a person's career. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, to start with, you yourself be convinced what it is that you can, yes, service, how you can add value to the other, you know, to the position. I was absolutely convinced they needed me, you know, yeah. with my background, with my talent, and I thought they really need me. And this was the same feeling I had whenever I went to interview for a position. Mm. It was not just me there wanting, wanting, but I was there and I felt, you know, convinced of my own value. And, and that's um, so powerful. And, and yet so many women in particular struggle with that, of doubting your own value and or attaching value to external things like my Harvard MBA or my job at this big Fortune 500 company or my big title. And as soon as, you know, those things hold less value or get displaced, suddenly you're left doubting yourself and not believing in yourself enough. And you've consistently illustrated that no matter what you had or didn't have, it didn't matter. You just believed in yourself. You believed in your dreams and pursued one dream and then the next and then the next, right? Well, and, and I just, yes, I was going to say, you know, I, I felt I was bringing a lot to the table mm-hmm. in terms of my experience and, of course, you know, my educational credentials. So, so you had, again, an amazing stint, um, you know, in working with the government and being able to create impact through public service. Um, but then you had another shift, which at the age of 58, you decided to move to China. What led to that? Well, okay. So after I left the government, you know, it was my belief that I only wanted to serve one term, whether or not. President Bush, you know, would seek a second term. I just felt that 
the political appointments should just be, you know, a one-term thing. Uh, but so many of them, of course, they they get, they go to Washington and they get intoxicated by the power. Mm. They get what is called beltway fever. Mm. Beltway fever, and they think the world revolves, you know, within the beltway. Anyway, and they just stay on. Right. Usually to be a, a you know, uh, what do we call them? Oh my God, slips my a mind. A lobbyist. Lobbyist, absolutely. So lots of lines. But anyway, I was going to leave after one term, no matter what, and I was able to make the transition back into the corporate world for a position as VP, International Business Development, for a Fortune 500 company. And in that position, I traveled to Europe, but I focused on Asia. So I traveled mm-hmm. mostly to Asia, made several trips to China. Mm-hmm. I remember just feeling, you know, really sad in a way and, and frustrated that I could understand a little bit, but that's it. And I couldn't really communicate. Mm-hmm. I just felt, and I knew I loved the language. I had one year of Chinese, of Mandarin, you know, in college. So... At 58, I decided, I was going to say, much to the shock of my family, that I wanted to move to Beijing and spend some time studying Chinese and reconnecting with my roots. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still remember my, I was my poor mom, <laughs> she was in shock, you know, when I broke the news to her and I said, Mom, I've been giving this a lot of thought and what I really want to do is move to China study Chinese, and she looked at me. She goes, Dinah, at your age? You know, and I was 58, and she, I know that she was worried. I mean, thinking mm-hmm. I lived there, I didn't know anyone. Other side of the world. Right. And so even though you're, a, uh, you know, you're Chinese, but you were equally a foreigner going back, you know, into as choosing to live in China again. I mean, you had spent your entire life um, in the United States. And even though you had traveled and worked around the world, but choosing to go back and live there um, must have been just as much as a culture shock or adjustment for you. Well, you know, when I, in many ways it was, but it wasn't, I mean, I was, um, I was prepared for it. I wouldn't you know you're never really prepared, but I was more than willing. Mm. Whatever you know, my 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 attitude, and this comes back to just attitude in life. It makes yeah. the huge difference. And my attitude would be: I really wanted to ex- enjoy the experience. I really wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. Study Chinese, and you know, I put myself on this rigid schedule of study, study, study. Work out a little bit. And then study, study, study. <laughs> and I did get a part-time job as well to help Chinese students who were wanting to go abroad. And so they need to help with English. Mm-hmm. Yes. And really, the more I learned the language, well, this part about being a foreigner, the more I learned the language and the easier it was for me to communicate with the local people. And I realized that they looked at me really, I think, not as a total foreigner, but they would say things to me, I feel that they would not have been comfortable perhaps saying to a, a Caucasian, mm-hmm. I mean, a real, what they consider a real foreigner. Mm-hmm. Because their eyes, I could speak the language. Right. And, you know, I, there was... There was a easy, connection and you were able to reconnect with your roots. And, easy yeah. communication. Mm-hmm. And I've said this before, that I don't think it's possible to really appreciate and understand another culture if you don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. Because 
there's just so much that gets lost in translation. Even the best translations can't convey sometimes the subtlety mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever is trying to be conveyed. And the Chinese language is so rich. Mm-hmm. I love the language. And it's just so rich that, yes, that I was glad that I could be conversationally fluent by the time I finished studying. So you went there originally thinking you'd go there for a year to study the language. The year turned into a decade. Well, you know, yes. (laughs) (laughs) See, the years that I spent in the corporate world, I was so... Um, I was going to say possessed. I was like a possessed person. No, I, I was so intent on climbing the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. I subconsciously was trying to make up for lost time. Mm, because you and started I, late, you felt right. like you needed I mean, to I mean, rise. You know, 16 years later. And I remember consciously setting my goals every three months. I mean, I had three-month goals, six-month, nine-month. I would give myself a, you know, a evaluation. Every three months, okay, what have I learned? What did I still need to learn? And so I lived by a very, you know, rigid, orient, future-oriented schedule for myself. And I have to say it worked. You know, I learned a lot, got a lot done. And I knew I was always, you know, climbing this corporate ladder. So when I went to China, I thought, okay, I am going to just not set a timetable. I'm going to... For change, just want to, just want to allow myself go with the flow, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. What happened was that I fell in love with the language, the culture, and without really having set, you know, any timing on this thing, it just I kept going back. I would come back to the U.S. for a visit, mm-hmm. you know, probably once a year. I mean, once a year, and um, visit my parents. Well, my, no, not my dad, he passed, but my mom and my kids. And then go back to Beijing. And it just, I don't know how things like that happened, but so suddenly it was a decade. <laughs> and you got to witness um, the transformation of China during that decade, because that was a pretty significant decade for China. It was Significant is understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it was transformational. Mm. Tell, tell us more about that. Like what, how would you describe it to people that are not familiar with what it was like before versus after and also don't have as much insight into how impactful that decade was for what China became? You know, I think... Um, I'm just trying to remember this. There's a saying in Chinese, Tian Fan Di Fu. I hope I'm saying it correctly. I should be, know it. But there's a saying, and it's only four characters, Tian Fan Di Fu. If I'm saying it incorrectly, I'm sorry. But I think that's, it means the literal translations, heaven and earth change places. Mm. And this is the phrase that they use to describe something that's, you know, you can say indescribable or you know, they used this phrase after 9-11 to describe what happened. Mm. And they used that phrase to describe the transformation in China during that decade. And people went, I mean, in the beginning of that decade, so many people did not have any phones. They had to wait two or three years, you know, for a landline to be installed. And within a few years, forget the landlines, everyone went to cell phones. Right. And then when I got there, I don't 
I didn't know anyone that had a car. Nobody had cars. They all had, you know, bicycles, the common person, average person. And <clears throat> by the time I left, you just had incredible traffic jams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and then <clears throat> there was a couple, university couple. They were both uh, teachers in, um, in the Chinese, Chinese university, and I got to know them. And they were very kind, and they invited me to their apartment. And I remember the first time I went, I thought, this can't be where they live. When I was even looking at the outside of the building, I thought, this can't be. It just, it looked, it looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. Just, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, like concrete mm-hmm. outside, and inside was all bare concrete. It was really, I mean, and the, they didn't have anywhere for me to sit to visit with them except on their bed. Mm. because they just had the bedroom and then sort of a very small room that they use for cooking. It was really the chapter in my book says from hovel to heaven Mm. within like five years, they moved three times and the last apartment was wooden doors. And she kept showing me her carved wooden doors, (laughs) a very modern kitchen, totally modern bathroom. It was just amazing. I mean, it was that kind of transformation that rapid. Mm -hmm. So amazing. Yeah, I can relate to that um, as um, someone who grew up in India and left India and came to the United States in 1997. At the time that I left, um, you know, my hometown, things were still very much kind of like a third world developing nation status, you know, was a small economy. And I remember traveling back to India in the 2000s, I think it was like 2002 or something. I was completely blown away. I mean, this was a country with a booming economy, infrastructure that seemed to have, you know, popped out of the earth overnight. You know, for you and I, we're both immigrants and we share that common love for America because our dreams were made possible here. Our dreams came true here and it wouldn't be possible at the scale anywhere else. And so the gratitude, the, um, the sense of pride of being American runs really deep and it's a choice to have come here and it's a choice to stay. And um, there's a tremendous amount of pride and um, honor of being part of that and wanting it to continue to be as great as it is. Um, you know, when I look back at your story of everything you've shared, you know, your a uh, journey has been just pursuing one dream and um, not being held back by barriers and believing in yourself and achieving that dream and then on to the next dream. On to the next. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it, it's so incredible to hear that story, but it's, it's such a true American story too, right? Absolutely. No, it's, that's, you said it beautifully again, and that's it. It is. It's the American dream and setting goals for yourself, having a vision, having dreams, mm-hmm. and, um, and then having the courage, really, uh, whatever the odds may be, having the courage to, to follow your dream and to know that, you know, even if you didn't achieve your dream, the fact that you have the courage to follow your dream makes life worth living. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now, you followed another dream of yours, which was writing your book, your memoir, Daring to Dream Once Again, It's Never Too Late. How did that feel to have one more dream come true? And what's the most important message you'd like to pass on? 
Wow. Well, it was it was an ecstatic experience and excruciating experience. <laughs> you know, it was also really, I believe, um, the scariest thing that I've done. Despite all the things that I've done, or it was the scariest because it's so vulnerable. Mm. And vulnerability, you know, now, of course, we, after Brene Brown, we, we believe in vulnerability. But my whole life, I didn't believe in vulnerability. I mean, I didn't believe. And, and it just felt so vulnerable to write a book. And then when I knew it was going to be not just a self-help, but it would end up being a memoir, it was even scarier. Mm. Even scarier. And it just took every ounce of strength for me to decide, okay, I'm going to do this no matter what. I'm going to have to do this for myself if, you know, if for no one else. But I also wanted to do it for my children and my mm -hmm. grandchildren. And it was wonderful. I mean, it just, the fact that I wrote it, whether, you know, I thought, okay, even if nobody reads it, I have to write it. And so that alone was just such a feeling of, well, gratitude, really, mm -hmm. feeling of gratitude, yes. And, um, and I did have the help. You know, I had a program with an author mentor, and she said when you write a transformation book, it's transformation on four levels. It's transformational for you, the writer, transformational for the reader, transformational for your business. Of course, I don't really have a business, mm -hmm. but if you did, it would be. And then transformational for the world. Mm-hmm. And um, when I read my book, I have to say, Nikki, it touches me. It touches mm -hmm. me. Because I think back, wow, you know, that young lady all those years ago, you know, had the courage to do these things. Right. And so I, I think because emotionally, psychologically, um, it took a lot for me to write the book. Once I was done with the book, I go, Shh. it's like, Shh. Okay, I'm gonna, you know, and, and, and instead of, you know, marketing it, which I really didn't, I've just enjoyed playing with my grand, granddaughter. But. And, and yet the book has become a bestseller, and uh, your message is clearly resonating with, you know, people across the board. And I can, you know, knowing you, I can see exactly why. Um, what, what is the ultimate message, not just through the book, but that your life and mm -hmm. legacy and um, story really um, is about? You know, um, I do say this, that if, you know, there's a lot of messages, but if you ask me just one, the message would be to follow your heart. Mm -hmm. Following your heart is, if you follow your dream, you're following your heart. And... There's a famous quote, actually, that was made by Steve Jobs when he gave the commencement address at Stanford in 2005. He said, and most of all, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition for somehow they know what you really want to become. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Right. And so to me, following your dream is following your heart. And, you know, the left brain is wonderful and it's analytical and it's, it really, you know, serves a great purpose, of course. But sometimes it, it, its job is to protect us, keep us safe. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't want us to go out there and, you know, put ourselves in, put ourselves out or, you know. And, and the heart says, you have to do it. No matter what. 
So I would say, if I only have one message, I would share that message. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing all of your experiences, your wisdom, the incredible stories, and such a powerful message. And you are truly the embodiment of uh, someone who lives that idea of it's never too late. It's really never too late. (laughs) Did we tell everybody my age? (laughs) Well, you want to tell them? Of course. And what's your next dream? That's the more important thing. Well, my, okay, because, well, not because. Okay, I have to say, I now say I am entering the sixth stage of my life. In January, I became 78. Woo! And (laughs) so I thought, okay, time for the sixth stage of my life. And my next dream, which I think I've only verbalized out loud to one time, but I'll verbalize it today, is one day, one day, one day, I don't know when, to be in the red circle, which is to be a TED Talk, to give a TED Talk. Wow. Well, we're here to support your dream. So, you know, you may have done it all backwards <laughs> than what other people do it. And uh, even though, as you describe it, you're entering the sixth stage of your life and you've had all these incredible chapters one after another. But I love that you never stop dreaming, you never stop believing, and you never think, it's too late. So here's to having our listeners support your dream of doing a TED Talk and, uh, you know, get your book and get the inspiration and learn from your experiences. Um, And then we'll be uh, cheering you on, waiting to watch that video. Thank you so much, Nikki. I look forward to continuing to follow your story. Only better things will come. Thank you. Thanks for listening. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com, where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode. And be sure to take the quiz on the website. Your score will tell you where you are, what helps you gain momentum, and what holds you back. You'll also get a free guide with cutting-edge career strategies. We'd also love to hear from you. Share your comments and topic suggestions on IamBeyondBarriers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.